From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. A couple of bits and pieces of, uh, of some polymer stuff, but I, I've never really paid attention. But because I was in a, a metals technology role and I was working on qualification of aluminium, the... Um, we, we talked about alternative processing and, and the, my line manager just said, you know, we can print aluminium powder here. I was like, what is this witchcraft? Let me see. So it was, uh, yeah, I was, I was dragged in front of, a, of an EOS M270. Um, and that was my first real interaction with what is 3D printing proper. That's Robert Higgum. Robert launched Additive Manufacturing Solutions, AMS, in 2017. He's a chartered engineer and has experience across academia, motorsport, space, and aerospace. Robert was responsible for qualification of materials, processes, and parts produced by Additive Manufacturing, most recently for Airbus before creating AMS. AMS was designed and aims to bring aerospace-grade qualification, validation, and operation capability to all corners of industry, and at its core aims to support the industrialization of Additive Manufacturing. To do this, he's building a team that uses experiences to support AM strategy, validation, and training. Most recently, AMS has launched an agile R&D service to bring knowledge, capability, and outputs of an aerospace-level R&D lab to any customer. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Also, if you or your company are looking for materials, qualification, or general added manufacturing support, reach out to our team through our website or via email at info at 3degreescompany.com. Hey, Rob, great to have you on the show today. Excited for the conversation. Um, I think we'll go in a lot of different kind of zigs and zags throughout the day, but um, I like to start all these conversations just with a little bit of grounding and uh, kind of a placeholder to, to at least come back to. So um, where were you born? Kind of what were some of those early days like in terms of getting you on the path to where you are today? That's uh, an interesting start, Mark. I wasn't expecting to go all the way back there. So I'm... Uh... I'm English. I'm not just very good at accents. I, I'm born and raised in a, a really small city called Preston. So if there's any soccer or football fans, uh, Preston North End is is relatively famous, one of the very uh, oldest football clubs. That's probably the only thing everyone's ever heard about Preston. A good, is, a good uh, friend of mine from uh, from uni was uh, lived in or was from Preston as well. Wow, what a small world. We do get around. We do try our best uh, to to escape. So I, uh, yeah, born and raised in Preston. I have a, a younger brother, and um, we, I guess, as, as kids, you no, know, my, my dad passed away when I was very young. So as kids, we were all about craft. We were all about trying to play with things, and and I think that's probably one of the things that really stuck. The only real um, significant moral I always remember from from my mum was always just just try, but also follow your gut and, and have fun and. She never really put too much pressure on me to be anything other than what I wanted to be. And, and Preston is the heart of British Aerospace or, or BAE Systems. So anybody who was somewhat capable of maths and science at school, that was the, pretty much the only route that you was taught about in school was, oh, you should go and do an apprenticeship with BAE Systems. And I followed the well-trodden path. Um, and that's where I started post-school at BAE Systems. I was an apprentice. So you start off on the shop floor, you, you do lots of manufacturing. And, and I think you know, to this day, despite the, the time I had there wasn't too long and it was a, a really poor time, it wasn't too long after 9-11. There was a lot of turmoil worldwide, in particular in the aerospace industry. Um, but the practical grounding just to have stood somewhere riveting a thing, I think that slight mechanical sympathy has, has been a common thread or something that I've always wanted to try and stay true to. But also I, I do think it's helped in terms of as we fast forward all the way to, to today, you know, that, that Addison manufacturing focus, which we're obviously going to talk about, but that, that understanding of what happens when these things go together, how do we do it? And and that little bit of sympathy, I think is, is so important as a grounding. What about you, you Mike? You're, Maybe, maybe you and I have. Have you got that same kind of mechanical sympathy? Is that is that common thread? Do you think in additive people? Yeah, I mean, as a materials engineer, I mean, I, I probably told this story before on on the podcast. But I mean, the reason I got into engineering, materials engineering, is because I like to play baseball and I like to 
see the different types of baseball bat materials they'd come up with every year, right? Some years it'd be, it'd be uh, aluminum and then graphite and then carbon fiber and all these different alloys. And so I got to go make baseball bats <laughs> one of my internships. And I thought that was awesome. And kind of see the, the, the behind the scenes of that, of that process and see how long it actually takes and not just a, Hey, here's a spreadsheet if, that has how efficient or the time cost model, right? It's like real people yep. that are behind all these numbers and, and um, that a lot of, people as you get further and further away from the shop floor make decisions on without much visibility into. So I think always connecting um, <clears throat> and appreciating that, um, that, that level of, 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 of context for, for either people you lead or people you work with is, is always very important. Yeah. I, I, I know it's the same context and there's lots of other people we could you know, name drop and I'm, I'm sure you've spoken to over the years in, in terms of there's always a link to a product we're always inspired by a product and and i think for, for me with with additive i know we're maybe fast forwarding 20 something years from from where we were just talking but uh the no, the there's a picture on the wall behind me it's here of a of a harrier juncture and and that product was an inspirational thing and, and i think Having a link to a product from passion or, or intrigue or whatever it is, I think that's pretty common. And additive feels, I don't know, more tangible. It's a product. It's a it's a thing which is visible maybe in some way, which with some of the products, like you say, spreadsheets and leading people are not. Yep. And did you uh, do you remember what your first thing you kind of worked on professionally in like the aerospace industry? I mean, if it's top secret, you can't say, but like, what, what were you actually doing on the shop floor back in the day? So I mean, beyond the, the, everyone made the the same old thing for a trading kind of gig and they make you sit in having your own intakes and wire lock upside down and back to front, all of those things where I look at, and I, I don't even understand how I possibly fit in that anymore. But um, beyond that, I think the first real job I remember um, I hated, uh, and it's because it just took so long, and it was replacing brake pads on a tornado, and it was like a weak job, and that was a weak job because the people I was working with had no drive, no no passion, they just didn't care, and I remember it vividly because the the same week we were messing with these brake pads all week, and we were an apprentice, and we were there to learn, and we were there to ask questions, or in reality, don't ask questions, just try and not get in the way, but um. The, the RAF came in and they did a full wing swap in a day. Well, it was a working day in hours. And I think that would, um, that's, that always sticks out to me for the for that reason. And and, and then the, the, the most enjoyable role, I think, not long after that was when I got onto Harriers and we were doing some uh, advanced targeting system work. But as an apprentice, I was involved. We were fitting them. We were, we were taking data from... Uh, from the aircraft, we was talking to the test pilot. That that for me was was quite an inspirational moment. But also, it was a it was a moment I decided to leave, and uh, I decided to leave because there were so much restrictions about what we were and were not allowed to do. And actually, I, I felt like when when you're passionate about something and you're not allowed to go and do it to the you know, because of time or whatever the constraints were in the way, that for me was was one of those first my mom always said follow my gut and um it was just something's not right and i can't i, I was worried I, even as a 17 17 nearly 18 year old kid and i was a kid i was worried i was just gonna have all the drive knocked out of me so i that's when i made the decision to walk away from the thing i loved and i've had pictures of them since rather than gone and worked on them but uh yeah that that gut feeling has always been the the thing and, and, and there's so, so many people who want you to or certainly over here, and, and in those days, they want you to calm down and wait your turn. And that was never for me. So we ran off and did some other things and looped around. And that's when we went to university because the kind of vocational apprenticeship from high school is quite common in the UK. So then I went to university beyond that after a couple of years of soul searching and figuring out what do I like, what do I not like. And, and that's when I, I eventually stumbled into to engineering as I stumbled into, I was kind of, I, I knew it intrinsically, but I was never involved in the in the spreadsheet side and, and all of those things. And, and that was actually you know, a bit of a accident, I guess. It was multiple engineering I studied. Um, 
but it was a logical thing. I've been I've been practical. I've worked with design. I've done some of these bits, and I think maybe I was just at a transition point to, to the way that we call things these days, where it's it's pretty obvious everything is kind of engineering. And now we're asking for practical engineers, and in those days, you had to be practical to become an engineer. And um, that was quite an interesting route for me. And, and I think I, I look now as a you know, with education, and I think well, sure that's the way it should be. Like we should put, force people to do this, but. Uh, Hey, maybe it's a separate podcast conversation on the, the educational requirements. So that's where we went. Then we went to university and and um, studied books for engineering. And then I went to Airbus as an intern. And um, that was when I was put in front of this big fridge-looking thing that had powder and lasers in. And, and then I guess you know, from that point, you know, here we are, 10 and a bit years later, and, and the rest is, is kind of history-ish. Did you know, like when, when you were kind of at that transition point, when you were kind of getting that internship and kind of your first job, how were you, how were you going about like finding those, those roles or was there the university pretty good at kind of matching people up? I think one of the questions I always get from people that may be outside of engineering or even outside manufacturing is like, where do I even start? Right. Um, there's a big Manufacturing is huge. Engineering is huge, right? Many, if like I'd say 95% of the companies are small companies. And then you have the big Airbus and Boeing and all the, the, the big manufacturers as well. But how did you get your start? Like, did you have a company in mind? Did you have an aerospace where somebody kind of pushing you? Like, do you remember kind of the mindset you had back then? I, I remember, um, I remember the mindset for sure. And, and we had, um, so the kind of our employment focused lecturer, I guess you would call him, um, he he basically argued with me. I I, I was uh, I was a few years older than the rest of my cohort because I'd been in work before before going to university. So I, I was kind of saying, I just need to get this degree and go and figure something out later. I'm, I'm already, you know, however old I was, I was twenty three or whatever. I was like, it's just this is. No, I'm already old. I should probably just rush this certificate. And he said, please, just apply for some jobs. It will do you the world of good to do some interviews. I was like, okay. So that was what started it. And then actually, um, I, I was always quite competitive with university in terms of wanting to make sure I every percent lower than 100 was, a, was for me, was a frustration. So I, I then wanted to win the applications in some way. And I remember feeling like, you know what? Uh, the more I looked at them, the more I wanted to answer the questions and I wanted to push myself. And, and I was always maybe maybe through age and a bit of wisdom and work experience and life experience, I was certainly more interested in thinking about what were these questions asking me. But it, it was pretty much always large aerospace, large automotive, or most support supply chain companies I was applying for as interns. And I, I applied for God knows how many. And I've said this for many, many years since then. I genuinely don't know why I carried on to that extent while still studying and all of the, you know, doing my own assignments and things. But there was something about the application game and the wanting to be offered some jobs or wanting some interviews for experience. And in the end, Airbus was my first interview. They offered me the job before my second interview was ever offered for any other company. I accepted it, and then I rejected quite a few, which was a nice little ego massage, I guess. But <laughs> I was rejected from 70-odd companies in the end, I guess, because they never offered me a thing. Um, so, it, yeah, in many ways, I took the first one, but the first one was a real big fish, and I thought it would be quite good. And I think I needed that. I, I was, by, no, by number, I was a bit more mature, but I think I still needed a large company as a buffer just to help me with my own development. I, I, I was certainly, um, or I certainly benefited from the large company mentality, though I, it, obviously it's not lasted because I, I'm not there anymore, but uh, it certainly helped me early, early on. And I, and I do say to quite a lot of, of students and, and high school as well as college and universities, that bit of work experience in a large company to give you that, that time that big companies can give you because no one's quite as busy in a big company as they are if they're in a small consultancy firm as a one-man band. Uh, that that was really beneficial. Uh, I, and that's why the large companies um, have such huge turnover of staff because they, they put that time in. Yeah. Did you ever think, I mean, like uh, I work, I think one of my first internships um, was with 3M, so another massive company. And, and so... There were a lot of folks there that had been there 15, 20, even 30 years. Did you ever, like, 
when you first started there and probably I imagine you see and meet a lot of folks that had been in that, like in the company for that a period of time, did you ever imagine that would be you? No, I, yeah, I've met a lot of those folk, and, and no, I don't think I ever imagined it would be me. I, I um, I, I managed to have some additional levels of self control when I was at Airbus, and I appreciated the significant step there was in the amount I had to learn between what I was. You no, know, I was getting good grades at, at university. I thought I could be an engineer, but the the reality of how to act as a professional engineer and the understanding of so many of the facets from, you know, from I, I was thrust into material technology, which wasn't something I particularly wanted to do. I, I, it wasn't that I didn't want to, but it was not necessarily the, the area that I was specializing with university, but you, you kind of get the intern where you, internship you go. And, but actually for me, all of a sudden then, okay, we need to understand everything about our process. Then what is metallurgy? And then what is statistics? And, and I realized at that point, like oh hell, this is not individual modules anymore. And, and I, the, but that that was for me. That was a right. I need to try and figure out how do I become useful enough to to do this without necessarily needing to be here so long that I become an encyclopedia of what's happened for the last forty years. And um, it was never my personality to stay put, but it wasn't my intention to leave. My intention was to move around the company try and travel and, and live all over Europe. I, I was lucky I had a chance to live in Germany for a while. It was a wonderful experience. Um, but I think, yeah, the same role for 30 years time was never going to be me. Uh, and I don't know why. I couldn't, I don't, I, I genuinely don't know why. Um, but it was never, it was never going to sit. And what was the, what was it like seeing your first, 3D printer was the metal printer, the first 3D printer you'd ever seen? Or like, did you just like jump in the deep end? It's like, hey, I'm going to like go big or go home. Or had you seen kind of right. incremental? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So we, I, I don't know. I'd seen a couple of bits and pieces of uh, of some polymer stuff, but I, I'd never really paid attention. But because I was in a, a metals technology role and I was working on qualification of aluminium, the... Um, we, we talked about alternative processing and, and the, my line manager just said, you know, we can print aluminium powder here. I was like, what is this witchcraft? Let me see. So it was, a, yeah, it was, I was dragged in front of, a, of an EOS M270. Um, and that was my first real interaction with what is 3D printing proper. I, we'd done a little bit at, at university and then we had a, a lecturer who was keen on it. He was, I guess, one of the early um educators involved in in some form of printing i, I call it printing because it was distinctly different to why i would say i'd see this but yeah it was pretty much straight in front of an eos talking about lasers and all of these things it was um with uh, that was my first meeting with john meyer so he's now ceo of appworks and he's pretty much the my introducer of, of am and has been uh yeah has been a great help on my am journey since then and, and he's a He's a really knowledgeable and, and equally quite interesting guy. He, he talked very recently at a UK editing manufacturing event, and he talked about his his journey through the excitement phase and then the lull of reality before trying to get on the path of enlightenment and and all the dates he was plotting. Actually, he was at the peak of his excitement the day I met him, or not the day I met him. That's, well, maybe, you never know, maybe I, I was the best. The best <laughs> all downhill after every <laughs> <we> met you. <laughs> <laughs> but it literally was all downhill. His, his dates on the slide, and a couple of people in the in the audience, they they like knew uh, knew me from from those days. They looked around, they were like, "Wow, is this anything to do?" And I was like, it, "It's there's a strange coincidence here, and I haven't pulled him on it yet, but I will have to ask him and see whether it was all down to uh, me to me." But I think you know that that's an interesting point because we we do that. That was the oh my god, what is this thing? This is the first especially at, at Airbus in commercial aviation in particular, the the magnitude of the way that we import billets and machine them and then get them fitted in, in the final assembly lines at wing before we then go over to final aircraft assembly, it was just beyond the comprehension of reality. Even if you went and saw all those things, it was just too, too big. But now all of a sudden, this fridge freezer looking thing next to a little cabinet with some widgets and some whatnots, it was... It, there was something about the scale of it for me, which which completely and utterly changed my perception of what I wanted, and and that was it. After that point, I was one hundred percent additive focused. I couldn't get away from it, and and and, and yeah, I, 
I've never been into a local electronic shop and been inspired by a fridge freezer so i don't know what it was it was something to do with the tangibility i think of of making parts live i think there was something about that which really caught me did you get to were you doing um like ripping out builds and setting up builds and all so like the whole we, workflow? What, what were you kind of specifically doing at the time so in, in that, that point it was pure introduction and it was it was a very interesting conversation because because the machine was was in our research and development organization, and and it was very early days for for the organization to to be acquiring data. But actually, what you no know, looking back, that was one of the very earliest conversations between the kind of uh, the qualification body, which was me and materials and process, and 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 my boss and the team. It was us actually starting the conversation about well, this is what you need to do to qualify this thing, and and it was very shortly after that part of time that uh, through John. And the head of aluminium of the whole of Airbus, which is a really cool job title if you're into aluminium or aluminium, sorry for our American listeners. But um, Matthias Knuber, who's another big factor in my life, which is why I'm name dropping. He, Matthias was uh, was a fantastic supporter. Matthias was, we sat in a pub in Bristol. And I said, Matthias, I really like to live in Germany. So any additional internships I can do when I finish here? And he said, yeah, okay. He, you can come and do a summer. That's fine. What do you want to do? Frickster welding or Anderson manufacturing. And February, I had a decision to make. Flick a coin. What do I want to do? Frickster welding or Anderson. I chose Anderson straight away. And and that was then actually that conversation. I had a conversation about the M two seventy. My role then as Airbus with with the Airbus commercial hats on was to write the first draft specifications for how do we actually qualify the material and the powders for metal AM. Focus on titanium. So. Yeah, though at that point I had no real interaction with the machine except for having a little look around and, and opening the doors and seeing what was going on. But uh, it, it it was the start of, of working quite closely with that team on behalf of Airbus Commercial to try and figure out how, how do we qualify this thing. So I've been very fortunate, I think, in terms of timing. Um, I've been cheeky enough, I guess, to just go and ask because it's amazing what people will do for you if you ask. You don't realise how many problems they've got and that, not know until you ask them and if you're happy to fill them. Um, and and that was where the qualification bit started, which is kind of the majority of my experience and exposure with additive has been on statistical validation, qualification, powders, process parts, and um, that journey took me to qualifying flying hardware. Um, not many people have managed to sign a form to to qualify hardware. Not many people designed process qualifications for AM. So I'm in a very fortunate little group. Um, but equally, I've had this conversation at, at, at a few conferences. You look back and you think about the things you wrote in these specifications. Now that you're a bit wiser and you know a bit more, you think, oh, God, why were you so restrictive? And and um, I think it's it kind of my career has shown the same progress that hopefully we're getting to with additive, which is you go from a complete lack of understanding or, or there's so much overexcitement about the possibilities from end to end that you panic and you freeze it all. And then actually you you start to slowly unpick it and, and you build up that kind of link back to what we, we said about becoming a process metallurgist with a digital thread. I mean, creating that type of, of engineer is is what's turned us into, into analytic people eventually. And, and um, you know, unfortunately, the, the specifications that we were writing were all based on our current level of understanding or our current level of ability to absorb all of this information. And how long did you end up staying at Airbus? So it was, um, I, I think it, it was pretty much five years almost to the day in total where the bulk of it was, was with Alice. There was a few other little projects which I was, um, which, which I took up, which I wanted to do as, um, I guess as a dip check to make sure I hadn't committed too early to, to where I am. But um, I did some work with fatigue. I did some work with uh, major wing test. Uh, and that was an excellent experience to try and, and, and build up that that backpack of, of tools that I need to go on this next this additive expedition. So that was five years in that role. Uh, and then adulting happens and the, the boy from Preston and had gone to Bristol and, a, you know, it's, it's probably a love story of a girl following me down and, and then we got engaged, we got married and we wanted to settle down and all those things. And we decided we wanted to come back home to, to the, to the Northwest of England 
So that was the kind of major contributor to me leaving Airbus alongside a few other frustrations with um, that gut feeling thing again, where I was just desperate to try and learn as much about additive, but learning about additive doesn't necessarily help us sell aircraft. And um, you've got to find a balance between being productive and, and being knowledgeable. And I think I got to a stage where I wanted to learn more than the organization was going to let me learn because of other priorities. So I had to make a decision about my priorities in that in that field. And, and that was what led me to, to leave. And then I created my own business, Addison Manufacturing Solutions Limited. I created it because I was told me to as I was leaving. We, we left what, what, year, what year was this or what kind of time? This is 2017. Okay. 2017. So... Um, we created a business, and, yeah, and it was purely because uh, my friends at Airbus, my friends at GKN said, oh, well, do it. Maybe we'll need some help. And I Googled how to held myself a business, and apparently it's £12 and a couple of forms. So there we it's go. 500 we bucks in the US. It okay, depends well, on state by state, I guess. It's a bargain. It's a bargain over here in the UK. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but I was very fortunate in that latter stage of qualification Um I started to rub shoulders with with a couple of uh, of suppliers, and and one of them introduced me to their um, the I think he was a, a VP of additive uh, for uh, an American firm, and that was Mr. John Barnes, who I think most people involved in additive and probably not additive know know John, and and that was um, John actually left around the same time I was leaving Airbus, and um, he then hit me up not long after I left and said, if you ever thought about setting up a company, maybe we could help me out. I'm setting up this this thing we're calling the Barnes Global Advisors. Maybe you could help out. So I actually, I, I never got the Airbus gig. They they asked me to, and then they sent me the supply chain policies and the procurement policies, and, and basically that was never going to, that was never going to happen. So I, um, my business basically then for probably four years was, bits and pieces of consultancy alongside a day job at a university in the northwest of England trying to change the direction of education in engineering. Um, and and my additive journey was building additive into a curriculum. So I've, I, I did the qualification bit and then it was, okay, I fell into this career. How do I help other people fall into this thing? Surely it can't just be me who loves this big fridge thing. Um, and I think I've had a, a nice little impact. There's quite a few of my students who, who've gone on to have uh, or, or having careers in additive or, or materials technology in, in in a wider sense so there's something about the you know the practitioner becoming the educator and trying to inspire the next generation that, that i what i fell for i guess um and i wanted to try and do that alongside it and, and my business really was an opportunity for me to be industrially relevant keep talking to people like you and and, and anybody else i could possibly find just to learn what's going on in particular, the, the UK has has been quite stagnant. Not a lot has really gone on for quite a while with AM. There's lots of people who've, who've developed significantly, the big boys, who you would imagine. But ultimately, in terms of general adoption and the funding of adoption and, and, and the openness to it, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're quite significantly behind the US in particular. And um, But in the last 12 or, or so months, there certainly seems to have been a little bit of a turning of the tide and we're starting to see more and more interest, which means that people like me with a, a business name that says additive in it have been hit up on Google and, and whatnot. And I think all of a sudden it starts to build up more organically. And and, and maybe in many ways, I, um, I was too early to the party as a UK engineer in those days in 2017 to try and have a, a, the type of impact I was thinking about having. But um, I think we're, Slowly, I think we're slowly getting there in, in the UK and there's lots of interesting opportunities and projects and things going on over here, which um, I, I, I listened to a lot of the talks recently at AMOG and, and some of the bits and pieces are online that the, the ASTM are, are posting and there's certainly not as big of a gap anymore between the kind of current level of projects in the US and some of the stuff that I think is going on in the UK. Um, maybe it's a little bit of the being British thing and not talking about it as much as we should openly, which is a big problem but uh yeah we're, we're slowly getting there and I'm, I'm really excited to be able to kind of be here as a business owner doing this for real i guess now and and, and not just as a side gig from for uh for industrial relevance and how was it it going from aerospace big aerospace company 
pretty structured, bureaucratic, to the exact opposite, to like, hey, you're your own boss. I mean, you've got, you were doing the university stuff, so that kept some structure, but from a business operating perspective, how did you handle that? <laughs> Yeah, um, not not well in in reality, man. Not not well. I think um, I, I'm very process orientated. I, I always have been, um, and so far I've I've found myself spending so much time developing processes that I'm forgetting to remember that that's not necessarily going to be the thing that pays the bills. And and um, so it, it is difficult knowing that you need to do a bit of all of it. What I am learning. And what I've been fortunate enough to, to experience at the university is actually sometimes no process can work as long as you know what you're doing and how you're doing it. And you keep it small and you can be agile and there's benefits in, in, in the lack of process. I um, So I, I guess I'm trying to, to be as adaptable as possible so that you know, in some conversations, we need to make sure we've got every process under the sun ready to be written out and, uh, and controlled and monitored and, and discussed. But in some cases, actually... Um, Part of the reason why things haven't developed is there is no agility in in research. There's no, and that's an international flaw. That's inevitable with bureaucracy and processes and size of these organisations and the size of the pay packets that, that you know, the DOD or the DOE or the UK equivalents are offering to universities and, and research centres. So I'm trying to be lean and light as possible in terms of our our management of how we process and trying to be a little bit more forward thinking in terms of the dynamicism that I expect of people to, to work with me or for me. But equally, in some cases, as soon as you then go back into those conversations with the big aerospace primes or the space, um, you know, the existing kind of traditional space manufacturers process is key. Um, but I think you know, maybe one for you to talk as well, you, you maybe have more experience, but you, the, the wave of startups, the space startups, the forward-thinking automotive startups who don't come from a background of SAE and ASTM specs as their traditional kind of stop start point. Do you? What do you think in terms of is, is that is that lack of process evident? Have you worked with any of those newer newer teams who are actually they're just doers? Is that a thing? It's it seems that way, but I've not actually experienced it. Yeah, I mean, it's always a balance. I think. Um, I think the the harsh reality is that most people hate making decisions and in a big company, it's easy to not make decisions, right? In a small yeah. company, it's harder to do that. And so I think it leans towards more people that want to keep the ball rolling forward or keep the momentum. And often that's at the expense of things like standards and, and processes and I think you can get away with that for a, a decent amount of time until you find a market, until you find the application. I think on the other end of the spectrum, it's really hard as a new business owner to go and say, like, I've got my three-year plan of here's my business model, X, Y, and Z, right? Because no one can predict the future. Like, I think no. my biggest learning, of, or one of my biggest learnings is, is uh, I think, the only good plan is a flexible plan, right? Like you could spend years making the perfect plan, but that doesn't exist. So if you mm. can be flexible, um, that's, I never wrote a business plan for <laughs> anything that I've done, done. Like you kind of talk to people, you say, Hey, like, do you need help with this? Or we see there's a software opportunity to do this and, and you kind of try it. And the reason I like being a, kind of independent small entity is I get to make the decision. I can say, Hey, let's try it. And like this podcast is like, if I'm in a big company, like the first thing they're going to ask is like, Oh, how many listens do you have? Like how, what's your link? Like all, all the stuff, like the metrics yeah. and things that like, look, this isn't Joe Rogan, right? Like I'm not getting 10 million people listening to someone. No offense. Talk about additive, right? Uh, not <laughs> but like that you're looking at it, like I think if you're in different environments, they look at it a different way than I would look at it in terms of longer term kind of opportunities and, and, and just trying stuff out and, and getting, uh, getting conversations started. Yeah. I, I think that's, that, that kind of rings true with the lack of, um, 
opportunity in some cases or, or at least the promotion internally at large companies to, to just go and talk to people I think is is interesting now I, I spoke to um, we'll name drop I spoke to the SDM yesterday we were talking about um, the consortium and we were talking about who the members of the consortium the data consortium in particular and um, I was talking to a former kind of opposition in, at GKM when I was at Airbus in Martin White who uh, I, I, we're both British and we talked about the lack of European entities on that list and, and I think there is a, there's still a mentality in the UK and Europe to just let's not talk about it because that's this is our IP or this is our whatever and, and the secret thing just doesn't work and that's one thing I really like about small businesses but I, I, I think even in, in some forward thinking businesses let's just talk about it our process is probably our IP that gives us the, the leg up, that gives us the power quality, that gives us the reason why the big boys want to work with us. That's you no, know, that's ours. We're keeping that. But let's talk about everything else because you can still talk without necessarily showing all your secrets. And and that's one thing I've, I um, found at, at the large companies is there's, there's no promotion to talk. And, and, I, and there's one quote I always think of. No, there's always some exceptions to the rule in the big companies. The chief engineer on A350 wing, he once said to me to make sure that you know, once you're proving yourself, you then need to start making sure that you get ready to ask for forgiveness instead of permission. And, and progress is significantly better than panic. And um, I think that that always rang true with me is you know, just be the decision maker, make it based on facts. And I quite like a spreadsheet and I quite like some stats to back me up a little bit for confidence maybe or comfort but just make a decision and, and I, I think that's probably part of the reason why I'm here as a very very small business owner let's make some decisions they might not always be right but let's make them based on what we think people are needing what people are asking for rather than what we don't know because we don't talk and what's your vision for the business do you want to give kind of what's your what's your pitch what's your and what, do you, what oh. do you want what do you want to be doing so Versus I, I, what, I, what are people paying you for to do? Yeah, <laughs> and how close yeah. are those? <laughs> so, well, pizza delivery is uh, is definitely on the table if it doesn't go well. But I think in in, in uh, I agree on the business plan side. Like, I spent quite a lot of time being quite analytical about where do I think the market will go and not go in terms of metal AM in the UK and qualification, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And actually, you just can't predict it. So, what I have got is a eighteen month, and let's call it a plan. But that's because I have visibility of the direction that these things are. I've got an idea of when the projects would start, where the funding would come from, who's going to pay what and why. So in terms of us as a business, I'm making recruits. There's offers on the table for my kind of first staff this week, which is super exciting. Um, but ultimately, I want to I want to support people. So whether we use the dirty word of a consultant or whether we call it support services, we want to support people. And, and, and there's packaging for that so to try and support the adoption of additive some small organizations in particular small organizations but not necessarily limited to they they maybe will go and i've had this a couple of times so it's, it's part of the offering they they will approach a machine reseller or, or, or an oem and say oh, yeah i think we can afford to buy a machine we'd like this time apart printing and they'll go that's fine here's a quote for obscene amounts of thousands of pounds of dollars <laughs> And even if they've got the money to do it, they then go, okay, well, we need to put some powder in it, I think, or some wire or whatever our thing is, and we need to then do something at the back end. And I, I, and I do wonder whether there's there's just so much fear about the unknown with, with organisations trying to adopt it, especially if they actually have a tangible benefit, but they don't necessarily have the skills to understand what to do. So I want to try and be, and I've described it a few times, as, you know, imagine being the, the pub landlord, bringing people together and... and no partnering and sharing so i don't have significant overheads i'm not into selling machine but what i will be able to do is act on your behalf to get the right discounts i'll be able to bring you the idea of what the full package needs to look like i'll be able to help you with training at most levels so that's the, the kind of cool. and that's exactly how i've described it yeah an additive integrator where maybe rather than you go direct where you, there's there's very little discount. Maybe there is a little rob higher rate that I can get because I know people and I can try and help them with a sale. And actually, you know, could I get you a bunch of hardware, install it, integrate it, advise you on software training, etc. And actually, could it be cheaper than if you was to go and get quotes individually? Maybe. I've I, I run a couple of Excel sheets that will suggest you know, the, the expected RRPs versus 
some of the potential discounts I think I'd be able to negotiate. Maybe that's the thing. Not a, a core business strand, but certainly something I'd like to do to try and have an impact. Training, obviously, as part of that is is really core. Cool. So I, um, I, I offer training and I'm trying to do it as much as possible in partnership with other organizations who maybe are better known than me, but also because we want to try and take Metal AM training mostly, but not necessarily limited to Metal AM, but we want to try and take Metal AM training to people who don't necessarily know where to go and find it. So we're using, uh, in the UK, we have a bunch of professional bodies, kind of um, the people who will help you on your route towards professional registration, like chartership. So I'm working very closely with the IOM3, which is one of the, well, it's the biggest one for materials. It's one of the bigger ones in the UK. So I would deliver the Metal AM training I'm talking to a few other organizations about that from the, so that's the, I guess that's the heart. That's the bit which um, floats my boat. I want to have an impact, but alongside that, there's no real commercial thing there longer term is there's lots of opportunities, but it, it will be sporadic. It's difficult to predict. So I'm looking at then how do I take that on? So maybe there's a training school option with, with some kind of partnerships and, and things, but the final kind of bigger strand is I want to be, agile r&d for hire so organizations can approach us and we can provide this kind of aerospace grade qualification platform so whether it's utilizing modern machinery you know some of the people you've already had on the podcast talking about things like plastometry as a method of of gathering data of stress strain curves rather than the traditional tensile group so can we support everything from parameterization through to um, novel materials or, or new alloys, etc. I want to be able to offer that as a service, and, and, and my partner network, as I'm calling it, includes universities and some other companies who maybe already have the machines. So why why would someone who's a bureau want to do R and D? There's a lot of time involved, but actually, in a partnership, it's mutual. Where the bureau can sell me a machine time doesn't matter what we put on it. Let me worry about that, and, and then I'll do all of the the legwork, I guess, in the R and D, and and that's the that's the plan and within that there's a few specifics so there's there's the kind of software hardware interaction side of things in terms of some advanced processing maybe advanced uh, or more advanced laser profiling and some of these other weird and wonderful things that some software providers are offering these days but also then in terms of feedstock so that the uk's we're a very small little island. We're isolated more than ever. So I, I'm, I'm looking at opportunities to try and provide novel or alternative feedstocks or data on some of the plethora of, of really interesting sound and American-based alloys from all the, the companies who are actually aren't really offering a huge amount on UK shores yet because there's not been the uptake. SIPK, Elementum, Uniformity Labs, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, to get that, the... the some of that needs to be paid for by companies. I'm not just a, a, no able to do for charity, but the UK, um, the UK does have ample government funding, not necessarily as accessible, I believe, as America makes and some of the other things from the DOD, etc. But it, it certainly is there. So we're going to try and um, work with partnerships and and some other bits and pieces of steady state work we do already to kind of co-fund or part-fund or fully fund some of that development. And I want to just be a you know, a, a data store of potential opportunities. And uh, and as part of that, I'll inevitably then become, you know, dare I say, a master user of certain bits of software maybe and hardware, et cetera. So I think there's lots of spin-offs. But at its core, Agile R&D, what do you need to know? I might have already done it, and I can just give you the data in exchange for a small sum of pounds and pence or we'll go and do it for you and i think there's that's what I, i'm hoping allows us to to continue for for many years because that's something that i will certainly enjoy doing um and as a, a wise man once always told me and a wise woman once told me when i was a young boy follow your gut and do what you enjoy and, and I, as long as i'm not in crippling debt then i think we would have done a good job of that um if we can keep doing what we enjoy yeah awesome so it's a good journey um so as we kind of think through the the last couple of questions of today um first one what's uh what's exciting you about the rest of 2023 you just came off of a mug and we saw you chatted there um anything really exciting obviously you've got kind of this company and 
all the excitement from that, but from an industry perspective, what, what, what's kind of your, what's your gut telling you of, of is, is the recession here? Are people pulling back? Are there like, what's, are people going full steam ahead? What, what, what do you see? I think, um, so I, I, I'll approach this in two ways. Globally, I think some of the, the portability of machines that could make our lives easier to get the right data so we could develop more rapidly so our process become more robust. So um, whether that's to do with the kind of plastometer side or whether that's chemical composition, the, no, uh, the, there's so many desktop accessible methods in which we can get quality data rapidly. And, and I, I think that's quite an exciting opportunity. So hopefully by the end of the year, we'll start to see less talk of this multi-month parameterization, optimization activities that we see in the big companies. Actually, we should be able to do that in, in hours and days. That really should be much quicker than that. And, and I think those technologies will enable that. Globally as well, alongside that, the software is, I mean, it's crazy. The, the amount of new organizations or relatively new organizations offering all of these bells and whistles which didn't exist before, so I'm very excited to see whether we can actually start to push materials further than we did before, and then we'll stop talking about you know, no worse than forged properties and uh, or, or slightly better than cash properties. Maybe all of that will go away, and we'll start to be able to to, to really push materials. If we can push our material, decrease our scatter, uh, we will be able to decrease the mass of a part, which decreases the mass of an aircraft. So then we'll have an impact, a real impact on on our environmental and sustainability. Locally, then, more locally in the UK, I'm um, I'm really excited about the the opportunities that seem to be opening up for for larger collaborations between the big boys and and, and some of the little boys in uh, in digitization generally, not necessarily just additive, but the kind of uptake for for robotics and uh, and software integration and, uh, and additive is definitely part of that. Smart materials and, and the sustainability side. There's, there's lots of that work. How um, how I see that direction going is is not necessarily too clear because I think there's so much development in and alloys, for example, but there's not necessarily the process capability in the country to be able to do that. So I'm I'm hopeful and uh, I'm expecting that there'll be a more defined strategy in the UK which will allow us all to be able to follow a path, uh, not necessarily the same as they forward, but maybe that type of thing which which starts to instigate a, a general well-trodden pathway that people should follow so not necessarily the most exciting thing but it's a really good start considering the amount of years that i've been kind of left idle in, in additive in the uk what about you i'd really keen to hear what you think hmm. yeah i mean i, I think uh, echoing a lot of what what you saw i mean i think the reality is we just need to make this cheaper <laughs> like no one's going to adopt it if it's a million dollars and 18 months and a million and a half dollars to qualify a machine and a system, especially in metals, right? Like what small company is going to do that? You can't, mm. uh, most big companies aren't going to invest in a fleet of these systems. Um, uh, and so it's an interesting time. Um, I think a lot of, certainly in the US, a lot of government money coming in. There's industries that are hot, right? Space, for example, but is that sustainable? Is that going to be in three years, five years going to be the same as what it is now? And so how do you establish kind of connections through traditional manufacturers, the broader supply chain? That's what I'm really interested in is kind of the mechanics on the ground is like, how do you, how do you support growth in not just big companies, but people that are buying their first or second machine and supporting that infrastructure in a way that's cost effective um and and people enabled right labor is always going to be a shortage especially nowadays and so how do you um enable that so i think there's there's lots to do software is not going to solve it all hardware is not no. going to solve it all there's still a lot of need for um uh, people talking to each other and being collaborative and making decisions taking risks um with the technology no I, mean, I like it i think uh, getting the machines out 
you know, the smaller machines in particular, the smaller little cost machines, let's just get them out in front of people as well. Let's get them on show. Let's get more people to the front of these fridge freezer things and let's get some people inspired because that's where the that's where the shortfall is in it's always in the education and the workforce. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the smaller machines. There's a there's a few where they're all relatively cost effective, I think, if you've got a production plan. Um it'd be interesting to see whether how, how productive they are and, and whether that fits for those type of organizations. But agile R and D and material development, there's there's lots of options without you necessarily going to spend half a million dollars. So right. <laughs> I think that will that will help drastically, I, I would imagine, in terms of just getting people ready. Uh, and that's what I've seen in the UK. There's a few people who've approached me about um exact metal specifically, you know, for the price, I don't think we could possibly go wrong. Type thing, and you know, yeah, you can go and buy been a, on the podcast. He's great. Well, you can go and buy a, a three-axis <laughs> mill for the same price. So why would we get this thing? And and I think that again, it's that education, it's that opportunity to get in for the machine and figure out how to how to actually handle powder properly. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm well up for the for the fight in helping educate, and uh, hopefully we manage to make enough money so my kids can stay off the streets while we do that. Yeah. Um, so last question, um, kind of, uh, out of left field, what's, uh, what's a book that's inspired you over your career or that you've read recently that has helped shape kind of how you think about the technology more broadly, your leadership or entrepreneurship? So the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the title is, is, um, it's not an ideal one to try and say, so I'll have to censor a word, but, um, we're not censored. This isn't. Uh... My, my wife always tells me um, that I care too much, and uh, I get too irritated at stuff that isn't important. So she bought me a book called "The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F." Oh yeah, and, I've seen uh, that. Uh, and that one, you know, it, it's just it's like talking to yourself because you know these things, but you're reading it. It's like somebody stood in front of you. The, the way it's worded. It's just like, just stop it. And it's when you're stuck in traffic and someone's coming slow, but there's a car in front of them, who cares? And um, I need to pick that back up again soon and, and remind myself. And, and I think that's that kind of thing is really helpful. Um, in particular, in this small business world, you know, you, you feel quite isolated and you've got to remember, sometimes you just don't have to care. And, and uh, yeah, that, that that's the one that sticks out certainly does stick out fantastic rob well thank you so much for your time today good luck with everything i'm excited to see you at the next event whether it's in the u.s or over in the uk or elsewhere um and uh we'll throw up links to, to all to what you're doing so thanks so much for joining the show thanks mike